You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Matthew chapter 20 is where we are this morning. All right, Matthew chapter 20. And this morning we are looking at verses 29 through 34. Matthew chapter 20. And we read beginning at verse 29. And as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. But the crowd sternly told them to be quiet. But they cried out, all the more, saying, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes be opened. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight, and followed him. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we just finished singing these marvelous truths about your grace to us and the finality of your saving work in our lives, the, the security and the surety of all that you have promised to us in your Son as we have sung of, of things that are weighty beyond our comprehension, even though we know you have opened our eyes and granted us spiritual sight, it is still in our hearts to say, help us to see. Help us to see more than we see. Help us to grasp more than we grasp. And Lord, we know you're doing that in the lives of your people, that you are expanding our capacity to be able to apprehend the things that you've done for us in Christ. And I pray that even the sermon this morning would contribute to that. That you would grant, as Kelly prayed earlier, clarity as I preach this morning, even insight as I preach this morning. And I pray that you would be at work in our hearts as we listen. That your Spirit who authored this book from which we Declare your truth that He would be at work in this next hour, strengthening disciples to grasp what their Master has given to us. Lord, I also pray on behalf of those who are lost that this might be the day that their eyes are open and that you grant them new life in your Son. I, I recognize there are tremendous needs represented in this room some that we're aware of, some that we're not. Some that have been voiced to others, some that are just between that person and you, Lord. And I'm so grateful that you have a way through the preaching of your word to, to reach right into those situations and to grant your help. And we ask for that today as well. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great mistakes of the charismatic movement it's been true throughout my lifetime, my familiarity with the charismatic movement. I've seen this 
One of the great errors of the charismatic movement is the failure to recognize that the miracles of Jesus were never an end unto themselves. This is what people want. This is, this is what people want who hunger for what the charismatic movement promises. They, they want to live as though all that you read in the gospel accounts and all that you read in the book of Acts, all these things were meant to be normative. And they were not. And the Bible says they were not. That's what's amazing to me about that hunger. The Bible's clear that the miracles of Jesus represented signs. And the miracles of the apostles represented signs. They were meant to attest to something, to confirm something beyond themselves. In the case of our Lord, what He did in the form of miracles, they were meant to be interpreted as a confirmation of His person. Biblical promises concerning the Messiah, His miracles said, I am the one. I am here. And therefore meant to confirm His preaching and His claims. In John 10.37, our Lord was able to say this, If I am not doing the works of My Father, then do not believe Me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe Me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in Me and I am in the Father. If you're having trouble recognizing who I am, just look at what I'm doing. That's what he was saying. So what you saw in the physical realm as Jesus performed miracles was meant to point to Jesus, meant to point to His person, meant to point to the truths that He was preaching, to confirm them, to attest to them. Also meant to point to what He came to do. The power seen in the physical realm testified to what He came to do in the, in the realm unseen. The promise of the forgiveness of sins. His power to save. Mark chapter 2, verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Our Lord pointing the fact that I guess anyone could say your sins are forgiven. How do you know that he has the power to forgive sins? Well, what if I say, take up your bed and walk? Next verse, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And of course the man did. The miracle in the life of that paralytic pointed to something even greater, and that is the authority of Christ to forgive sins. So the miracles were signs. Now you also had at the same time a breaking into the present of the powers that will characterize the age to come. Christ on the earth, even the apostolic signs, what you have was a foretaste of the age that we will be living in forever. Hebrews 6.4 says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, 
and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Once you've been enlightened in that way and then you walk away from the truth, it's it's impossible to renew them again to that place. But as he's talking about that, as he's giving this warning about apostasy, in that context he says they've tasted of the powers of the age to come. That's what these miracles were, a breaking into the present of the powers of a future age. What I want you to understand is this, the greatest need of mankind is not the healing of a body that is going to perish one day. I mean, think even about Lazarus. Jesus raises him from the dead, four days dead in that tomb. By this time, his body is decaying. His sister recognizes that. Jesus calls him out of the grave whole, such is the power of the Son of God. But what happened to Lazarus after that? He lived out his days and he died. So even if if we could have healthy bodies, everyone in this room, no sickness, we're all going to die unless Jesus returns in our lifetime. That's not your greatest need. The greatest need is not a healthy body that's going to perish anyway. The greatest need of all human beings is reconciliation with God. The forgiveness of our sins. The transformation of our very nature. This is what the charismatic movement misses. This is what it downplays. The greatest miracle anyone in this room will ever see in your entire lifetime is when God takes a God-hater and transforms them into a God-lover. When God takes someone who is spiritually blind and gives them spiritual sight. When God takes someone who's rebellious against His Word and makes them submissive to His will. That was your greatest need when you were born into this world. To be forgiven of your sins to be reconciled to your God, to be transformed at the heart level. Well, that has a connection to our verses today. Jesus has just told His disciples for the third time what awaits them in Jerusalem. He has spoken of His death. He has spoken of His resurrection. He describes what He's going to suffer and they're going to witness in detail. But he ends on the note that he's going to be raised from the dead. What does all of this mean? He's just spoken of his death, but what will his death accomplish? Why is he going to Jerusalem to die? What will his resurrection accomplish? And immediately following that teaching to his disciples about his death, as he's on his way to Jerusalem, what do we meet with? We meet with another demonstration of his mercy. Two blind men crying out to the Son of David for mercy. And He is going to, with compassion, grant them what they ask for. And as He does that, what is happening in the physical realm speaks of something greater that He's going to accomplish in Jerusalem. 
that has to do with the spiritual realm. We'll see this this morning under four headings. I'll just give them to you as we come to them. The first thing we see, verses 29 and 30, hopeful cries for help. Hopeful cries for help. Verse 29, and as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and behold, two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David, Jesus, on his way out of Jericho, Jericho, about a day's journey from Jerusalem, being followed by a large crowd of people. Luke's description of this scene sort of helps us to get it in our, our mind's eye. Luke 18.35, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So, a crowd of people following Jesus, and it's so thick that he's standing behind, these men are standing or sitting behind this crowd of people, hordes of people. They can't get to Jesus, they can just cry out to him. Luke tells us they were alerted. By the sound of the crowd, they hear this crowd passing by. And they, they say, what's going on? Well, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And these men know who Jesus of Nazareth is. How they know, we're not told. Our, our Lord has conducted ministry throughout all of these areas, so I'm sure they were familiar with it, but, but, and perhaps they had heard about it or talked even to someone who had experienced it. They know this, they, they know that he fits the description of the Messiah because they use language that identifies him as the Messiah, son of David. And they call him Lord. Verse 30, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So they are addressing him, whatever depth of perception they had of, of who he really was, they are addressing him as the Messiah. And here's what they know. He is the only person on earth who can help them with their physical problem. As one blind man who was healed said, never since the beginning of the world has anyone ever opened the eyes of someone born blind. There is no one on the planet who can grant us our sight. And He's passing by and He is within the sound of our voice. What would you do if your only hope for the restoration of your sight was now passing by and within the sound of your voice? You would do what these men did. They began to cry out. And it's not mild. Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. 
What are these? These are cries for help, hopeful cries for help. Second thing I want you to see, not only these hopeful cries for help, they are persistent cries for help. Verse 31, but the crowd sternly told them to be quiet. Stop that. I mean, sternly, with a sense of being annoyed, disturbed, angry perhaps. Maybe even not, you know, not with the nicest language. Shut up. Stop it. It's a good reminder, isn't it? You can be in in a crowd of people who follow Jesus and yet not really know his heart. You can follow Jesus around, even, even to some level admire Him and be a stranger to His compassion. We saw this earlier with His own disciples. People bring their children to Jesus for blessing, and the disciples are annoyed by that, and they want it to stop. Jesus says, don't stop the children from coming to Me. These are men who know the Lord Jesus. They've been saved by the Lord Jesus, and they still don't understand His heart. And not knowing the spiritual condition of the crowd, but knowing that most people who would have been following Jesus around at this time don't really understand who He is. Most of them probably unregenerate, but they, they certainly don't know His heart. They don't share His heart toward these blind men. They want them to be quiet. Maybe, maybe it's something as simple as you're getting on our nerves. I mean, they're standing behind you shouting this stuff out. Or maybe it's the idea you're just not important enough. Stop making a spectacle of yourself. But whatever it was, it didn't stop these men. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. They understand the urgency of the opportunity. Will Jesus ever pass by their way again? It's got to be now. And as I already mentioned, the the singularity of their hope, there's no one else who can help them. So these hopeful cries for help are desperate cries for help. Persistent cries for help. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It doesn't matter what anybody says to us. I will not be quiet. I will not shut up. I will not stop crying out. My only hope is passing by right now. Third, notice that their specific desires are expressed. Verse 32, And Jesus stopped and called them. Calls them out of the crowd. The, the other account, accounts acknowledge even that the crowds recognize this was a day of mercy. He's calling for you. And he says to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes be open. Jesus seemed to have a frequency for people needing mercy. Remember when the, the woman with the issue of blood thinks to herself, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, and she presses her way through the crowd and she touches the hem of his garment. And Jesus, you remember what Jesus said? Who touched me? 
And they said, what do you mean who touched me? There's a crowd of people pressing in all around you. Who touched you? You've been touched countless times. In the midst of the press of this crowd, who touched you? Jesus has an ear for the cries of people in need. He hears the cries for mercy. He hears the cries of hopeful faith. And here's the compassion of Jesus, the love of Jesus. He stops. He stops. Hordes of people all around him, commotion all around him. But he hears the voices of these two blind men, and he stops. What bothered the crowd doesn't bother him. He takes the time to display his love. He gives them an opportunity to express their faith. Why does he ask them what they want from him? Isn't it obvious? I mean, obviously he knows already what they want from him, but why would you even ask? Isn't it obvious what they want from you? They are blind men. So why does he ask? Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? Well, he asks because... This is an opportunity for them to express their sense of need. An opportunity for them to express their faith. They identify their sense of need. We need our eyes. We want our eyes. We desire for our eyes to be open. But they also express their faith. They've already done it by the way they cry out to Him. But even now as they answer Him in verse 33, Lord, we're addressing the Lord and we want our eyes to be open. He also would have asked them, not just for their sake, that they have the opportunity to express their sense of need and to express their faith. He asks them for our sake, for the sake of all those witnessing this, because it's an opportunity for Christ to connect what He's about to do in the physical realm with what He's heading to Jerusalem to accomplish in the spiritual realm. These are signs. The miracles never an end unto themselves. I don't want to be misunderstood. Every person whom Jesus ever healed, He cared for those people. We see that right here in our verses. And every blessing received in the temporal realm was intended from the foundation of the earth for those people who received it. The miracles were real. They were meaningful in and of themselves but they were always designed to speak of something greater than themselves. They were signs. So giving them the opportunity to voice what they want alerts everyone in the crowd to what he's about to do in the physical realm. And we're able to connect it to what he came to do in the spiritual realm because what he's about to do is something promised in the Old Testament Scriptures regarding the Messiah. Isaiah 42 Verse 6, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. Yahweh, speaking of His servant, speaking of the Messiah, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness, People sitting in darkness. People who are blind. People who are imprisoned. He came to set us free. To grant us sight and to open our prison cell and to set us free. This was acknowledged at the time 
of his presentation at the temple as a baby, Luke 2.27. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The Savior for the whole world. A light of revelation to Gentiles and Jews. The one who came to open blind eyes and to set the captive free. And so as our Lord deals with these two blind men, He deals with them in a way that not only is helpful for them to express their need and their faith, but helpful for us to recognize this is the Messiah, this is the promised one who is about to perform this miracle. What we would want is that you would open our eyes. Lord, that our eyes be opened. Here's something wonderful. Do you know the one who came from heaven to earth and lived for us, and then died for us on the cross, and has been raised from the dead, ascended into heaven. He's coming again for us. Do you know He is... I know you know, because you're one of them, if you know Jesus. He's still opening those blinded eyes, isn't He? His death was in payment for our sins. And as the Gospel is brought to us in time and history, in complete accordance with the sovereign plan of God, as the Spirit of God takes the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God in hand, and pierces men and women to the heart, just as He did on the day of Pentecost, so that they cry out, what must we do to be saved? And the answer is provided in the Gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. As the Lord is opening blinded eyes, do you know? He's using servants who received the same mercy. He's using us whose eyes have been opened as we preach the gospel to see other eyes opened and to see the family of God gathered in through the preaching of the gospel. The kingdom populated through the preaching of the gospel. When Jesus called Saul of Tarsus to himself, when Jesus called the apostle Paul into the realm of salvation. He told him of his purpose. He told him what he was going to use him to do. And in Acts 26, verse 16, it says, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to anoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul, I have opened your eyes and now I'm going to send you to the very people from whom I'm delivering you, the Gentiles and the Jews. I'm going to send you to them to preach what you know now in me, that their eyes might be opened. That they might have a place among those who are being sanctified by faith in me. 
You sit here this morning, a disciple of Jesus Christ, it is only because you were once blind, but now you see. You were once in a prison cell, but now you're free. You once were under the power of Satan, but now you're, you belong to God. And all of you whom the Lord has opened your eyes, He now sends you forth into the world to preach what you know in Christ, what you've been given in the Gospel. And through the preaching of the Gospel, He is opening blinded eyes and setting captives free. What He's doing in Jericho points to what He's going to Jerusalem to accomplish. Isn't it interesting to think about our life in Christ began with a prayer. What does He give, give these blind men an opportunity to do? In effect, to pray. To call out to Him for what they desire. To, to express their sense of need and their faith in the singularity of their hope. Only He can do this for them. And that's where we all began. The Lord opened our eyes to our need and we saw the singularity of our hope. Only Jesus can do this for me. Only Jesus can grant me the forgiveness of my sins. It's by His blood that my sins are washed away. Only His righteousness given to me as a gift by faith can allow me to stand before God accepted. Only in the Beloved will I ever be accepted. My greatest need is not the healing of my body. My greatest need is reconciliation to my Creator and the forgiveness of my sins. And only Jesus can do this for me. So that we cried out to Him. And He heard our pleas for mercy. He heard our cries for help. J.C. Ryle, in a book called A Call to Prayer, talks about the, the importance of prayer. And one of the reasons why he said it was so important is because it's necessary for salvation. It's necessary for salvation. Listen to his explanation. Quote, I hold to salvation by grace as strongly as anyone. I would gladly offer a free and full pardon to the greatest sinner that ever lived. I would not hesitate to stand by their dying bed and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ even now and you shall be saved. But that a person can have salvation without asking for it, I cannot see in the Bible. That a person will receive pardon of their sins who will not so much as lift up their heart inwardly and say, Lord Jesus, give it to me. This I cannot find. I can find that nobody will be saved by their prayers, but I cannot find that without prayer anybody will be saved. It is not absolutely needful to salvation that a person should read the Bible. A person may have no learning or be blind and yet have Christ in their heart. It is not absolutely needful that a person should hear public preaching of the gospel. They may live where the gospel is not preached, or they may be bedridden or deaf. Right? He's talking about unusual circumstances where you're not out there hearing someone preach in a crusade or, as he talked about in the first instance, maybe you don't have the capacity to read because of blindness or lack of learning. And yet, someone can still be saved. How? Because they've heard the gospel. Well, they've read the gospel. They've been told the gospel. And they lifted their heart 
to Christ and asked for salvation. He goes on to say this, but the same thing cannot be said about prayer. It is absolutely needful to salvation that a person should pray, that a person will receive pardon of their sins who will not so much as lift up their heart inwardly and say, Lord Jesus, give it to me. This I cannot find. So hopeful cries for help, which then become desperate, persistent cries for help. Shut up. I will not shut up. Which then become specific cries for help. This is our need. This is what we desire. And you, son of David, Lord, are the only one who could ever do it for us. Which leads to the fourth observation, verse 34. Sight granted in two realms. Sight granted in two realms. Verse 34. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight. Don't miss these last three words. And followed Him. They regained their sight and followed Him. They regained their physical sight. Their spiritual sight is testified to by the fact they now follow Him. A few things I want you to recognize about Jesus in verse 34. Look at our Lord. Look at our Savior. Look at our Deliverer. Look at our Shepherd. Look at our Master. Look at our God. What do you see in verse 34? His help is not without heart. If you're not careful, this is how you can think about God. When you talk about the impassibility of our God, you better not think of, about that in terms that deny or diminish the statements given in Scripture that point us to His heart toward us. This is the Son of God. This is God in human flesh. And the Bible says, moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. I want you to know today, dear saint of God, Jesus has not just saved you, He loves you. In fact, you were loved by God from the foundation of the earth, foreknown in the sense that God set His saving love on you, then called you in time. There's a kind of love that God has for sinners that doesn't result in salvation. Remember the rich young ruler walks away from Jesus and the Bible says that Jesus felt a love for him, but He let him walk away. There's a kind of love that God has for the whole world that is testified to by the coming of the Son of God into the world. And the Bible says that God loved the world, John 3.16. I take that to mean the world. The world of humanity. But God's saving love is manifested where you find salvation. Jesus has not just saved you, child of God. He has loved you. He has saved you in a way that expresses His love for you. His help is not without heart. His help is sovereign. It's His to give. What do you want Me to do for you? Verse 32. What do you want Me to do for you? You ask Him, and He grants it. So that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He is sovereign. 
in salvation. His help is His to give, which is why you ask Him. You cry out to Him because He has the authority to do what you're asking for, if what you're asking for is spiritual sight. If what you're asking for is reconciliation with God, if what you're asking for is the forgiveness of your sins, He's the only one in whom it's found. There's no other Savior God's given to mankind but Jesus. Salvation is the work of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in the sovereign plan of God for saving sinners, Jesus hung on the cross to pay for all of our sins and has been raised from the dead. And in His name, there is salvation, and there is salvation in no one else. God has set His Son before you, that God would save you. You must come to Jesus if God is to save you. His help is the help of God. This is something that is always striking to me when you think about the charismatic movement. They talk about all these healings and all the rest. It's amazing to me they don't match the biblical picture. Because when you look at the healings of Christ and even the healings during the apostolic era, what do you find? But they are immediate and complete. Now you keep holding on to your faith. You keep confessing that you've been healed of what you said you've asked Jesus for, all the while the faith healer's wearing glasses or balding. Can you recognize a huckster? Because the world is full of them. No, what Jesus does, notice it says, He touched their eyes, verse 34, and immediately they regained their sight. These are men who can't see, and now they can see. When He says to a paralytic, take up your bed and go home, He's able to do it. He's not limping around on a stage back and forth. No, keep, keep walking, keep walking. It'll limber up. He's healed. This is the power of God. This is omnipotence on display. His help is not without heart. His help is His to give. His help is the help of God. His help delivers for discipleship because they regain their sight and they follow Him. They follow the one whom they've confessed to be the Son of David. What is this? This is a sign. The miracles were never an end unto themselves. Finish this morning by thinking about you. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Him as your Savior? Think about you for just a moment. We are those whom the Lord Jesus called out of the crowd, living our lives in this horde of humanity. Lots of people knowing about Jesus, lots of people even talking about Jesus, lots of people claiming to follow Jesus. I don't know about you, I was religious before I was saved. I was a Baptist before I was saved. I was baptized before I was saved. I was a church member before I was saved. I was in the crowd of people following Jesus. I didn't have the heart of Jesus. I didn't know Him. And one day out of that horde of humanity, the Holy Spirit of God through the preaching of the gospel, the, the voice of the Son of God through the preaching of the gospel called me. Effectual calling. A kind of calling where the gospel goes home to your heart, where your heart is open like Lydia, and you understand the things that are being declared to you in the gospel. 
where God grants repentance and faith, where your heart is broken by the message, pierced by the message, and there's faith in the only one who is our hope. What did God do for you? He called you out of the crowd. And the result was you were one of those who recognized your need. Do you understand on this day when Jesus healed these two blind men, there were blind people all around? Maybe not in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm. Did any of those people recognize they were blind? And so here we are in a world full of blind people. What did God do when He saved you, but that He made you to know you were blind? Oh Lord, I'm a sinner through and through, and only You can save me. So that we not only recognize our need, we recognize the singularity of our hope. Only Jesus is the Savior. Only Jesus can set me free. Only Jesus can rescue my life. We are those who reached a point of desperate faith, persistent faith, determined faith. I mean, when the Lord opens your heart, there is nothing that can stand between you and Christ. He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure hidden in the field. You'll liquidate everything if need be to go have that one pearl of greatest price, the treasure hidden in the field. Nothing will stand between you and Him when the Lord truly saves you. I'll say it to you this way. If you can take or leave Jesus, you've never found Him. If you can take Him or leave Him, you've never found Him. So examine with me this morning what you call Christianity. And examine it in light of the most basic means of grace that God has determined for His people. Just think about the gathering of the saints. Think about the church. Well, sometimes I come and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I come when I feel like it and sometimes I don't feel like it. I'm not telling you today, if that's your attitude, that necessarily I know that you are lost. What I would say to you is, when have you ever been awakened to your spiritual need to the degree that you were desperate for Christ? And if you have been there before and you're not there now, where He is your bread, He is your food, He is your drink, His people are your family. If you're not there now, why not? Why not? If you can take or leave Jesus, you've never found Him. These men were desperate. You were desperate when the Lord saved you. They were persistent. You were persistent. They were determined. You were determined when the Lord saved you. We are those who cried out to the Lord from our hearts. I think J.C. Ryle is correct. Never been anyone saved apart from a prayer. Oh, I'm not talking about something verbalized. I'm saying, saying the heart lifted toward Christ. It's, this is what saving faith is, dear ones. It's sight. That's why Spurgeon was able to say, just look. But it's still, you see, an, an outward move of the individual toward the Savior. Even if it's just looking. If you're so weak, all you can do is look. It's still a prayer, as it were, as you lift your heart toward the only one in whom salvation is found and forgiveness of sins will ever be granted. When did you pray? When did you ask? When did you long for the forgiveness of your sins? We are those who then, just like these men, we met with mercy. Thank God for that frequency that Jesus has. 
that when he hears cries for mercy, he stops. When someone is so desperate, I've got to get to him and touch the hem of his garment. He says, who touched me? That's our Savior. So that when we cried out to him from our hearts, what happened? He heard us. And he gave us what we asked for because we recognize what God wanted us to recognize. Lost in need of salvation. We met with compassion and mercy so that now we are those who still follow Him. Our eyes are open so that we still now follow Him. You hear about people quote-unquote deconstructing. Deconstructing their faith. And I just want you to know, young people especially, those headed toward an age where you're going to head off to college, I want you to hear me. Listen, anyone who can walk away from Jesus and stay gone is someone who never knew Jesus in the first place. A faith that can be deconstructed was not saving faith. When Jesus saves someone, He preserves them to the end. Christ is not just my only hope for a standing before God in which I'm perfectly acceptable to Him. Christ is my hope today for the sustaining of my faith this day to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the throne of God. We sang about that earlier. Do you understand? It is Jesus who keeps you believing. It is God through faith in His Son that sustains you to the very end. Show me someone who has ever truly been saved. I'll show you someone who is still following the Son of God. Have your eyes ever really been open? Can you take Him or leave Him or do you still follow Him? And even in those, and we do, we do know, don't we, ups and downs in our walk with God, but even in those low moments, you know if the Lord has saved you, you have nowhere else to go. You want to go away also, Jesus says in John 6? Do you want to go away also? Where do we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. Have you ever come to know Jesus in such a way you have nowhere else to go? So that the Spirit of God with the Word of God keeps you walking with the Son of God until the day that you see Him face to face and stand in the presence of God in the eternal day as a trophy of His mercy and grace to you, a sinner, who one day recognized your greatest need was not the healing of your body, but the forgiveness of your sins. And the one who opened blinded eyes on this earth opens blinded eyes in a much more profound sense when a God-hater is transformed into a God-lover, when an unbeliever is transformed into a believer. The church would say, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for that mercy to us in your Son. Thank you that you have loved us and that you love us. That salvation is not some cold transaction, but the way you have chosen to make it known to us is a way in which we recognize your compassion towards sinners, your desire for our salvation, and that you did everything necessary to secure each and every one of us who knows you. Thank you for our Savior, our King, 
our one and only hope, Lord Jesus. Thank You. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who has saved us through faith in the Son. I pray for anyone hearing me today who has not yet placed their faith in Jesus. May this be the day that blinded eyes are opened. Someone cries out from a heart humbled by the Gospel with desperation and determination cries out to Jesus for the mercy only found in Him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.